there is so much out there to get mad about. Social injustices, class warfare, continued colonization, the act of destruction of our planet by those focused on profits and not people. We can find it overwhelming at times. The good news is there are equally as many, if not more, stories of people coming together and rising up against the forces at play. So the creators of Blueprints of Disruption have added a new weekly segment, Ravel Rants, where we will unpack the stories that have us most riled up, share calls to action, and most importantly, celebrate resistance. Well, first we got to start off by saying, welcome back, Santiago. We've missed you. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. It has been a while since the two of us have gotten to rant together, so... Yeah, you were off in Colombia. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I got to go away to visit some family for the first time in a long time. I hadn't been back since since 2017, and it was a really eye-opening experience. Um, I've learned a lot about how the world works since 2017. And, you know, getting to, to be there and, you know, see how things have changed, compare things, life there to life here. It was really i mean there was a lot of good there was a lot of bad there was a lot of you know really shocking contradictions that we're going to dive into in uh, a future episode as i unpack things a bit more but i'm really miss being able to be here recording and i know we wanted to record when we were there it didn't really end up working out but uh no it's good to be back I did get to talk to you while you're away, and so it's a bit of a teaser because I'm eager to hear more about those kind of reflections because I know they kind of contradicted our our feelings around our episode on South America. So, yeah, the reason we can't unpack it today is because there's just so much else to talk about, and I feel like that's always the case, but... We'll certainly make time for that for sure. So again, welcome back. It's not the same without you. Although I did enjoy talking to Mo last week, if folks heard our episode on Lebanon and Palestine, and we will be talking about the siege on Gaza again today. The second half of this rant will be centered on the ICJ proceedings that hopefully everyone was glued to. If you weren't, we will catch you up and we will tear apart Israel's sad little defense. (laughs) But first, we have a really good story. Santiago, you've got a story about a student strike at Algoma University. International students at that. Yeah, yeah. And it's a story that um, I hope that many people in our audience have heard. But if you haven't, I wouldn't be surprised because there's been virtually no coverage of this as large, as massive as a story it is. But essentially, at the Brampton campus of Algoma University, there was a permanent strike of a few hundred students after they, many of them failed this one online class that was mandatory. For many of them, this was their second failure of the class. And it brought up a few alarm bells for them because for so many of them to have failed without explanation they began to suspect that there was something wrong going on and they made an effort to email their professor to ask for an explanation no explanation was provided worse than that their professor ended up blocking a bunch of them when they reached out 
to inquire about why they had failed the class. They hadn't gotten back like, here is the questions you got wrong. Here are the questions you got right. They were just blocked. So they began to worry, is this, you know, a cash grab? Wait a minute. They didn't get any results back. No. Just a simple note that they failed. Yeah. And this is a mandatory course, right? Like they have to pass this. Yeah. And it's a mandatory, it's a mandatory $3,500 course. And there's hundreds of people in it. So I'm sure you're getting all the attention you need from the prof. Yeah, yeah. So they, they put a, they started a permanent strike. And when I mean a permanent strike, they set up tents outside in the freezing cold. These are international students who, you know, obviously they did not go up with the Canadian winters. They're out here in freezing cold weather for several days. And it was, support, it was supported by the National Support Network. Shout out to them. Absolute badasses. If anyone knows how to win a battle, it's the Najwan Support Network. Uh, and we definitely have to have them on again. That was, you know, that was a very early episode in Blueprints. And it's something that I've thought about them a lot since because we, we keep an eye on them. Because they're everywhere. They're continuously out here winning battles. Like, they're absolute fucking badasses. And um, I have nothing but respect and appreciation for their work. Folks got to re remember that we talked about bakery workers out in Brampton who were being screwed by their employer big time. And they launched a massive action, a strike out there to get stolen wages back again with the support of the NSN Peel. That's how you can find them on Instagram and stuff. And they were victorious there. Those were largely international students employed there. And so the exploitation of these students runs not just at their school, right, at their workplace, in their housing. It's absolute. Uh, denial at food banks. They really get the shaft. It's it's unreal. Yeah. It's good to know that uh, such a vulnerable group of our population has uh, an organization that is as as good at what they do as the National Support Network having their back so again nothing but my absolute respect but anyways um this strike continued for several days no media coverage which is absurd considering the fact that it is um such a large group of international students and it's scandalous and and like the cbc set up like a brampton bureau recently i was talking to a, a, a an international student from india uh, journalist uh, who, well, he works now uh, in the journalist department at Sumber. He was shocked that the CBC didn't. He was sending out emails. But the good news is, after a, an official review, they um, they found that the grades were far below what was typical. And they applied a bell curve. And uh, the majority of the students were then passed. The students who didn't pass are now being given the opportunity to retake the exam. Again, no explanation. They still haven't seen what they got right, what they got wrong. There wasn't really an, an explanation beyond that. So it, it, it's one of those things where it sounds like the university kind of covering its ass a little bit. But there was definitely a result here. And after that, the Toronto Star finally covered it after the events happened. They wrote a massive article and it took them to the very end to mention the National Support Network, which was a bit of a, uh, a shame. At least they did mention them. But but you know how the Nejuan Support Network is, though. They don't want like the credit as an organization because their whole thing is you organize yourself. Yeah. I want to give them credit because I want people to know that like if they're in a situation, they have someone that they can turn to. You know, they, they, I want their name to be out there because I want people to reach out to them um, because they they know what they're doing. So th there was good results at the end. 
not enough, probably, um, because there wasn't a full explanation. That's unheard of. Like, you've been in post-secondary for a few years. I I was in university. I've taken online courses in university. I've never not gotten feedback or, like, results that you could then dispute. I don't know if I I ever did. Oh, I think I might have. But that was always an option. There was even typically part of, you know, your student agreement or whatever you kind of got at the beginning of the class. There was like measures you could take if you did disagree with certain aspects of testing or marking. And to me, this whole process and the fact that they then applied a bell curve or, or whatever they actually did there. I doubt there was an official review. It was just probably a known thing that happened. They always do it. Like the folks that had taken this and failed before, are they going to be reimbursed for having to take this course twice when it's likely been some scheme from the beginning? Like folks need to start looking into Algoma University's practices altogether. Surely this isn't a one class one off because the teacher's not getting the money. The university is. So it's dri- it has to be systemically driven. Yeah. And one of the things that they were mentioning is that international enrollment into Algoma University has been on the decline now for some time. Because they probably treat them like garbage like this, like and beyond. There's been some suspicions raised. And like, I just, like for students... Because I've been in a lot of classes where people have failed uh, for reasons that they consider to be strange. You know, I've been in situations where a prof doesn't properly teach people and then fails people for not doing something the way that they didn't teach them to do it. I've been in a lot of situations. I've been in situations where um, my entire classroom meets with the program coordinator to complain about a professor because... Uh, it's so outrageous the the conditions in our classroom and we get nothing changed this is a situation where international students who are worried about their status who are worried about being able to stay in the country who are worried about the precariousness of their living situation go out and they fucking camp out in the freezing cold The, the the things that it takes to get to that level there is no doubt in my mind the legitimacy to their claim because for them to be <laughs> taking it to these levels sh- shows everything one needs to know about the credibility of their claims. People don't just go camp out. Students do not just go camp out and protest. That's not that's not typical in Canada. That's not something we hear about. So this was a massive situation. And the fact that it got so little coverage is an absolute disgrace. And it is one of many things. And we're going to talk about today about, you know, Canadian media failing to cover things that obviously should be covered. This is one of them for sure. Also, another story of fuck around and find out. Right. So now universities need to understand students know how to organize themselves. And that's why sharing that story off the top was important to us because we needed people to hear it because what a model. There was a tweet this week that really rubbed me the wrong way, and I'm not going to name names or anything, but it was talking about de-escalating. And I felt personally attacked, and it was not even directed at me at all. But the fact that, you know, we sit here and put our efforts into trying to encourage people to escalate the disruptive activities in order to get what we want, like meetings with the dean don't work. Simply maybe not attending a class or two don't work. Shifting to a different university for them to take your money, you know, like all these tactics are not the solution. It's escalating the disruption. It's making those demands clear and being relentless about it. That is the only thing that we have seen in all the coverage, like 70 activists and all of this, it's relentlessness. 
and unapologetically going after what you deserve that gets gets victories. Everything else, you're looking for victories. You're looking for a plus where there really isn't any. You're just trying to lift your spirits. Like these are tangible victories. These students secured it relatively quickly, which I think speaks to both their tenacity and the almost criminality of what had happened, right? Like they needed to settle this real quick before it did get too much coverage. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've seen many situations where students have legitimate complaints about procedures. A lot of things lately in the colleges have changed. Uh, The people making the decisions are less and less connected to the realities of the program and are making decisions that are uh, not to the benefit of the students. I've seen this both in music and in journalism. And students have done everything to have complaints. And when they don't get resolved, I've seen many students drop out as a result of their complaints not getting heard. This definitely is the better way to do things. And I, I'm going to pull a little bit from one of the eye-opening experiences of Colombia real quick. But one of the things that I was reminded of that I knew, but like I guess I, I needed a bit of a reminder of was a bit of the privileged position we have here when it comes to disruption. You know, disruption in a country like Colombia is met with violence. It's met with a threat to your life. Being disruptive is a much, much more dangerous thing in in places like Colombia, in many places around the world. Here we have the ability, I'm not saying we're not going to be met with levels of violence. The police are often violent against us. Or aren't already at some levels, right? Yeah, but we have an ability here to be much more disruptive than in many parts of the world. And, And I feel like that almost gives us an obligation to be disruptive. Like we need to use that position to be able to demand more, to to be able to use those tactics because we can. It's like getting the younger child to go do what you need to do at home, right? Like they'll get in so less trouble than if you do it. So you send them in to steal the cookie. Yeah, like we're not going to be killed for it. You know, there's no paramilitary militias out here that are going to execute us for asking for better. Usually. I think there has to be like a little asterisk that we can expect police violence to some certain extent, right? We've we've even covered it and First Nation land defenders know it very well. They can kill us, but it's much less likely and there is no comparison to not just Colombia, right? Like so many other places that then usually take those risks, right? It seems like even in those nations, uh, folks are willing to take to the streets in numbers yeah. uh, and defy those orders, it, whereas we are not. But that, that, again, comes to our privilege and complacency sometimes. But Yeah, and, and like it, it so happens, like I, I think of the case of Torturita in uh, the, the cop city in, was it Atlanta? The activist Torturita who was killed. Like there are still cases where, you know, you are met with execution. But it's it's far, far less likely and mass movements are, are much more powerful here. I mean, I think of like, you know, there's been violence at Palestinian protests. I think of the cops who the cop who was kneeling on a on a protester's neck a few weeks before uh, the, the holidays. There is still that. But at the end of the day, there's been 308 pro-Palestinian protests in Toronto in the last uh, three months and there has been considerably less violence than in other parts of the world. And so I, I do think that we have to be, to a certain extent, conscious of that. And, 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 and we, we have to be bold because of that. We have, to, we have to understand that everything worth a damn has been earned by resisting, by 
disrupting by actually getting out and, and, and demanding and forcing their hand. And Algoma University is a reminder of how powerful that can be, especially when someone is so clearly in the wrong about something. Um, it can be incredibly powerful. And, and, and when it happens, again, if it's, if it's an effective disruption, there's a good chance that media will not cover it. And we had that reminder, too, with the York Southwest and Tenant Union right before uh, we, uh, you know, I went off for holidays. That was an incredible victory as well. You know, blueprints of disruption. What's up? <laughs> well, speaking of people who are so clearly in the wrong, let's pivot to our next topic because I've been somewhat glued. I can't get up that early, so I rely on a little bit of clips for the first bit of the morning. But the... ICJ proceedings of South Africa essentially against Israel. Now, quite a few nations have signed on with South Africa and shown their support. Uh, usual suspects. <laughs> no big surprises there, so I won't bother listing them. And I'd like to think that it grows as we speak about it because the case South Africa has made is quite strong and considering they had so little time to present it from what we saw the points that they're making there is oceans of irrefutable evidence to that they could submit that they could have submitted that we could all still submit and i think they're making an excellent case that israel is in fact committing genocide the best way to describe israel's defense I mean, it is weak. There's going to be, it's meme worthy if it wasn't so horrific, but it, it's basically, oh yeah, all that's happening, but October 7th, right? Am I right? And then using procedural, like this whole court is out of order kind of approach. And none of it is like, no, we didn't, we didn't do that. So it's very damning. And anybody who wasn't sold surely will be now, but I think... You know, I was kind of going over some of these things and ranting, and my husband was like, are people listening, though? Are people listening? And I was like, I don't know. I think the same people are listening, and they were already sold, and the same people who think that they can defend this are hearing what they want to hear, and I'm not sure, so sure what these court proceedings are even going to accomplish. Right? We've kind of shit on international law here before, but in reality, despite all the outcome... Israel's response can totally just be like, meh. They could quite lightly not respond at all. Some folks are even surprised they bothered to defend themselves, especially considering much of their claim is like, we, you don't have a right to bring us before this court to ask us these questions and make these demands of us. Yeah, have you been watching any of it, Santiago? What are your feelings before I get into the kind of details of it? I mean, I, I've been watching the clips mostly, um, you know, first week back of the semester, so I haven't been able to follow things live. And and, and it, it, it's been a, a mixed feeling. For one, like, I I love the symbolism here of the fact that South Africa brought this forward, that one of the leading uh, uh, lawyers that they have on their team is an Irish lawyer. I think that you know the the symbolism is 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 hard to miss there of like the history of their people as as oppressed you know the south african apartheid the irish oppression by the english uh and all, all the the complex history there shout out to our episode of uh danny morrison not long ago that compared 
to to the joke we saw on display, you know, of the Israeli lawyer who was, you know, oh no, somebody shuffled around my papers, you know. And shout out to Loki for always bringing like a little bit of that humor where we need it most. But <laughs> oh my goodness, I mean, the 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 difference in the two presentations is overwhelming. I mean, it was a very professional, well put together case. Uh, from the South African team, it was extensive, it was thorough, and it was, a lot of it was, I mean, we've been saying this whole time that Israel is is um, almost, you know, presenting the evidence themselves via TikTok and social media, you know, they can't help themselves from condemning themselves almost through, you know, admitting to their wrongdoing, and, and, and South Africa presented much, much of that. At, at the same time, you know, like, I still have in the back of my head, buried deep down somewhere, a romanticized view of the idea of, you know, international law, of the idea of, like, human rights, that it means a goddamn thing, right? So a part of me, like, wants to hold on to the notion that, hey, this is gonna, you know, th- this has to mean something. You know, they must find them guilty and they must like this must bring about change. But at the same time, I I, I know better than that. And I, I can only hope that there that this does bring some sort of tangible change. But <laughs> sorry, right now you have this feels of like someone going into the NDP for the first time. And I'm like trying to just bite my tongue. I don't want to crush your dreams just yet, but I might. <laughs> And I mean, at the same time yesterday, what did we see? Uh, Well, we saw the U.S. um, go without congressional approval to bomb Yemen with the support of Canada, obviously without parliamentary approval because the parliament hasn't sat in how long? Well, yeah, Canada's, again, more than complicit. Right. Like they are just like champing at the bit to get out there and be a part of this. Like anytime. Can we come, guys? And we've jumped onto this all without approval. But it's at the same time, Israel's still trying to sell the point. Like part of their defense is that they still fear Hamas. And if any pause in the hostilities would allow them to regroup and rearm This is despite the fact that they've got a stranglehold on the entire area, not to mention drones flying over 24-7 to see anything that happens. But they've got a Red Sea now full of warships and allies that are willing to send a fighter jet if they catch a whiff of a Houthi rebel or Hamas or Hezbollah or whoever else they feel like they need to fire on. And they're still trying to argue like, this is all just self-defense. That becomes even more unsellable as 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 we go on and, and see the, the world kind of coalesce and arm them to the teeth. But I want to get into South Africa's amazingly presented court case because they, they center it around five points and they're not exactly matched up with the five points in the UN definition of genocide that hopefully many people have looked up by this point. I'm not going to read them out again, but they are largely making sure that they check off all of those points uh, in some way. So it's a five five star approach, right? Five points. First one is 
absolutely indisputable. I'm not even going to spend much time on it, unfortunately, because we have mass killings. These these aren't um, people being singled out or precision targeted. We have many documentation of mass killings, mass graves, 2,000-pound bombs being used, things the Americans don't even use in, in urban warfare. And this is all over our feeds. So obviously Israel cannot refute that. The second point is that they're causing bodily and mental harm to this specific group. And again, this feels like the first point. It's just like a no-brainer. And these are the first two points of the definition of genocide, almost verbatim. On that second one, uh, let's remind people that pre-war, pre-the latest breakout, something like 90% of children in uh, Gaza were said to have PTSD already. So when we talk about, you know, mental harm, it's as clear cut as it can possibly be. Absolutely. And and as I go through these, I hopefully will make the point. But if I forget, as you listen, you will know all of this predated October 7th. Some of it is 75 years old. The mental anguish that you're talking about and the bodily harm. I mean, the Great March of Return has horrific statistics in terms of injuries and then the targeting of paramedics and medics trying to evacuate those injured. So not only do you cause bodily harm, but then you don't even fulfill your humanitarian obligations in that armed combat. The mental anguish that people must experience here is like unfathomable at this point. That noise, surely you've seen like everyone streaming that noise. As someone, like I'm I'm kind of sensitive to noises like that personally, but I can only imagine what that would be like 24 hours a day. And it's not just an annoying noise. It's an annoying noise that brings death at any given moment. And the anxiety that must cause and the fact that there's snipers everywhere. And the, you know what? I want to talk about these fucking leaflets. These leaflets that the Israelis use as part of their defense, that they're trying to mitigate civilian death, like they warn people. Leaflets, they send notices for people to clear out their homes with like very, very little time to actually do a proper evacuation. They're using that as evidence of how honorable they're acting and so that nothing that genocidal is by intent. But these leaflets in themselves must be fucking terrorizing, right? Seeing them fall from the sky and then inevitably knowing what they're going to say and what that means. And it's just like this image is repeated over and over, no matter how many times you move. Again, when we're talking about this all predating October 7th, the third point the South Africans make is forced displacement. And Israel actually tries... (laughs) They are trying to refute this point. They've been doing this for 75 years, so the gall they, they must have to actually try to pretend that they're not doing it now when we're watching it, when we the leaflets are evidence of it, for example, and the destruction in the north, surely you don't expect anybody to go back and live there from what you've destroyed. You didn't just destroy homes. You destroyed courts and hospitals and schools and roads and water supplies. And they do not intend for anybody to go. Santiago, you talked about like the evidence that comes from inside Israel that like they've almost attested to this. One of the examples that they use is some of the dissent that happens in Israel, right? Like they're trying to say like all of these ministers have voiced this intent Right, we all these sound clips that we've heard, all these translations from Hebrew on directly referencing, you know, genocidal intent, that that was just rhetoric. 
But at the same time, they're doing what they're telling people they're going to do. So I don't know how they can come out and say that that's rhetoric. And I mean, also, you have soldiers who are saying stuff like, you know, how they enjoy killing children and how they wish that they could kill more babies. And like these are direct clips. You have soldiers admitting to to war crimes and, and to genocidal acts. And have we ever heard even once of a of a case of Israel um, holding any of them accountable? Like if it was, you know, if they were trying to paint the picture of like these are rogue individuals acting outside of their orders, then you would probably hear of a military tribunal, right? You would hear of cases of soldiers getting dismissed and uh, arrested and imprisoned for unlawful acts, right? You, you, you don't hear about that. Israel, I mean, we've had cases, you know, like... Like, I think of, like, the Canadian soldiers in Somalia. And, hey, they're not held accountable enough. But we've had cases where, you know, within the Canadian military, there's been far-right groups that, like, you know, ha- have led to to people being discharged, you know, have led to... None of that is happening here. Military, like, it's not just a free reign. And it's not paired with, with the genocidal acts, it's one thing to like have soldiers that are saying like I hate all these people and I'm going to kill them and then like then they actually also do it. Right? Like the evidence is almost in the act itself. It's funny that you say that or maybe not funny at all. You might have intended it, but one of Israel's defenses, I I meant to do them at the end, but I'm kind of blending them in here. One of their defenses is <laughs> don't worry. We're a rules-based country. So If there are any illegalities happening, if a genocide happens, our courts will take care of it. This is, of course, after, right? This is after it's done and all those people are dead and gone. Uh, They won't stop it, but we have the procedures to hold these people accountable. As though this is the first time the world has come to you and said your soldiers are massacring people. You have never shown us any indication that there's a rules-based order that values Palestinian lives equally or at all. Yeah, because your leaders are saying the thing, the horrible things. Your soldiers are acting and saying on the horrible things. And you want us to believe that anyone's being held accountable. And again, all states have a duty under international law to act to stop genocide. It's not something where it's like, we will retroactively hold people accountable. No, you have to stop it. You have to act to stop it. If genocidal acts are happening and your army is responsible for it, you have to stop it. But we're not going to be here sitting foolish and naively enough to believe that anything is happening outside of the direct wishes of those in charge. We know what's happening. Everyone knows what's happening. The evidence is so overwhelming that, like... It's one of those situations where if the, if the International Court of Justice is worth a goddamn thing, they must find them guilty. They must. The International Court of Justice is kind of like a show that goes on, right? It adds validity to people's claims, and it's almost like a domestic tool for people then to justify their actions. So at the very most, I think Israel might be forced by its own people to alter its approach, but... It may not, because you have to think these these are the same courts that have restricted their own people's ability to protest in their country. Right. They're not they're not courts that we can rely on. They're the same courts that have just completely greenlit the solitary confinement of youths well, well beyond the definition of torture. These are not just courts. 
particularly if it involves Palestinians. We already know this. So the fact that they can sit up there and try to use this as a defense, surely the judges, <laughs> I, I haven't gone through them all. I see that there's a Lebanese judge out there. There's 15 of them, I believe. And, you know, I'd like to think that they, they at least understand that that is a farce. Going back to the South Ar African argument for forced displacement, I think like the obvious is the North. We have to go back 90, over 90 days ago now. And they basically gave the entire North Gaza, what, like 24 to 48 hours to evacuate with zero assistance. And one of the quotes from the South African councils there was that order in itself was genocidal. One, because it didn't provide people the time to really evacuate and to force displacement is part of genocide. Mm -hmm. That is one of the criterias of genocide. And there's just no doubt that they have not just been displacing them by order, by bombs, by violence, but by creating the conditions in which it is unlivable in the North or any, like their goal seems to be the entire Gaza Strip at this point. But they are displacing them by cutting off the water, by cutting off the food supplies, by cutting off the electricity. And then on top of that, you add the violence. They also specifically, thankfully, hit on the evacuation of hospitals. I think that was a really hard thing that we watched in real time. You know, the siege on all of those hospitals and the pleas from the doctors inside and seeing how crowded they already were and trying to imagine how you would evacuate them to the next besieged hospital. And I don't know, if, if nothing comes of this, it, it seems, I don't have a word for it, maybe somewhat validating to finally have this on the world stage. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that beyond the world stage, I want to bring it domestically for a second, right? In terms of the fact that Canada is continuing to support through through armaments Israel uh, and through financial means Israel. I, I hope that this, uh, I mean, for one, that this has to be quite vindicating for Sarah Jama, uh, that this has to be a situation where well, when we're talking about sending more weapons, we're talking about sending more money. You, you have to hope that the results of this will ha will hamper the ability of the Canadian state to do so. Um, that it will give more power to the the MPs, to the parliamentaries who are who are standing against those decisions, and that they will be able to bring an end to those decisions. I have to hope that that is a possibility. I, I'm not saying that that's going to happen because we know just yesterday Canada, of course, supporting the bombing of Yemen. Uh, uh, the U.S. named Canada as one of the countries in support. Well, you already see like the maneuvering happening domestically where the entire U.N. is being called into question. And believe me, I could go on for many, many episodes about the downfalls of international law and the uselessness of the U.N. But the conservatives are taking hold of this narrative and that will be a quite convenient narrative to have if the results turn out because this is the UN's highest court this is different than the international criminal court this is what like member states use to fight it out uh without weapons ideally was the idea and you talk about results uh, just to let folks know the judges will make a ruling that could take years 
sometimes. But South Africa has asked for emergency ruling on some of the provisions that they're asking for. So as they make the case for genocide, they are calling for an immediate end to hostilities and to allow observers in. This has been a big point of contention too for Israel. And South Africa is trying to use that as evidence of hiding something, which isn't always the best legal move, but it, it does to the audience make Israel look quite guilty. But in a few weeks, we could expect a ruling. But this case was brought a few weeks ago. So if you think of how many people die in Gaza every day, and that even if we're like holding hopes out on this result, even this most emergency mechanism, it seems, takes almost a month to get even a provisional result. A temporary ruling is, I think, what they would call it. And so that's got to be devastating for the people of Gaza to sit back, if they can watch, other people decide this. An Irish lawyer and an English lawyer, which is very ironic because they got everybody into this, essentially. But And they're all a panel of 15 judges going to sit there and, and, and decide their fate to a degree. And even in the end, it's not like a a full hope, right? It's just a, a glimmer of a hope. Yeah. So Benjamin Netanyahu gets up this week and we don't often get to hear him in English. We have to rely on translations and you have to find good translations. Like people are really fucking with those and that's hard to find even reliable translations this day. But uh, he's, he's sure to do this in English, almost backtracking all of the genocidal crap he's been spouting for not just since October 7th for years as though like they just needed a video clip of their man up there saying see I don't intend to commit genocide and I mean it's too late buddy we have got all the sound bites I think we need to prove your intent long before this happened the fourth point the South Africans make we've kind of already talked about it not to dismiss it but I mean, just to folks already know the destruction of the healthcare system. This is relevant not just because it's horrific and it kills people and it then prevents people from seeking care, which is denying Israel's obligation under international law. It's evidence of the one point in the UN definition of genocide that they are deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. This ties in with their next. We're going to do them together. Points four and five for South Africa is destroying the healthcare system and preventing Palestinian births. And they are essentially one in the same, right? You have to imagine if you completely destroy a healthcare system, you're not only preventing births, but you are quickening deaths. And the injuries that are reported end up being fatal casualties in the end. Not only that, the blockade that has existed and, and increased the siege prevents key things from going in. And so starvation and disease will start to take people even more so because you have destroyed the healthcare system. So it's hard to see that if you do A, B, C, D, and E that we've gone through, how you couldn't have the intent to essentially erase those people. How you could commit all of these things that we've talked about and your intention wouldn't be to end Palestinian people altogether. I mean, the sheer number of women and children dead are enough to prove that you are trying to 
wipe out a generation. Yeah. And the ability to create new ones. And again, you know, we know how much um, Israel obsesses over the the makeup of the population. And it's it's not disconnected from that whatsoever, right? They're... Their intention is, you know, they constantly express concerns over the birth rate of Palestinians. You know, this is, there is more than enough evidence as to Israel's actions here when it comes to um, trying to prevent births and trying to increase the birth of of Jewish babies. I mean, it's, it's so fucked up. It's like, this is some deeply racist, eugenics shit. And it seems so obviously that. Like, I, I almost can't believe it saying it sometimes because it's like, how, how are we still talking about something that, you know, you, you think is, is, is buried in the, in the textbooks of history? Like, how is this a modern day issue? How are we still talking about birth rates of certain races? Like, what the actual fuck? More than that, that your critique of it is demonized as well. Even Israel in their defense, in the International <laughs> Court of Justice here, the World Court, as they call it, they're basically standing up in their defense and sounding like the same fucking trolls that we've been dealing with all of this time. Yeah. Like, their defense is calling South Africa supporters of Hamas and trying to shame them and throw shade on them uh, and so, like, disqualify them as being able to bring this. South Africa doesn't have a legitimate beef with us. Look at their history, yada, yada, yada. Like, they can't even defend their own position. They just go after their attackers. Like, (laughs) gaslighting 101. (laughs) But we've all seen that technique played out many, many times, right, in the 90 days where pro-Palestinian rallies are called Hamas rallies and... You know, everything you say for something is automatically attributed to being against something else. The defense lawyers for I hope Israel's getting their money back because those folks are doing a piss poor job. But the problem with the legal system, not just the world court, we all know this to be true from the stories we've heard from our own judicial systems, is that a lot of it is procedural. And a lot of times, even though guilt is certain, there are procedures that need to be followed, and most of them are there to make sure that the procedure is just in the end. Uh, but if things aren't followed, the whole process is thrown out. It becomes illegitimate. And Israel is really trying to use this approach, not only that South Africa doesn't have the right to bring this, that they are a sovereign nation dealing within their own borders, which they don't occupy. Uh, you can't have it both ways. But either way, that's largely largely their argument. But the most disgusting procedural argument that they are trying to make is that because the ICJ didn't intervene in the Bosnian genocide, that they shouldn't hear. So they're drawing comparisons to another horrific part of history to to their own to that they're committing and saying well you know you didn't you didn't give him trouble for that so you can't give me trouble for that and unfortunately although that would be an absurd claim to try to make in your home you know like but Timmy did it too and you didn't ground him that might actually fly in court Ow. right because courts largely rest on precedent certain rulings make precedents that 
when things come up, if something is similar to it, quite often judges have to rely on those precedents because there is no explicit law written for that or no explicit interpretation, rather, to that law. And so it sounds really lame and the whole world is feeling like those South African lawyers that I posted a a screenshot of just kind of like rolling their eyes and they kind of sit back in their chair in disbelief, like, are you kidding me kind of look at Israeli counsel. It's, it would be quite easy, I think, for these 15 judges to then rest on these procedural claims and then wash their hands and say, you know, the I didn't make the court rules. I just have to follow them. At, at the same time, though, um, a lot of what has happened is unprecedented, right? I mean, first of all, this is a United Nations court. It, the death of United Nations workers in Gaza is unprecedented. The death of journalists in Gaza is unprecedented. You know, the, the the level of bombing of hospitals is unprecedented. Like, they can try and make that case, but it can just as easily, like, th- that's one of those things where we'll see, you know, the legitimacy here. If someone wants to interpret things one way, sure, they can manipulate it to that way. But there is far more than sufficient evidence on the other end in terms of unprecedented acts, in terms of unquestionable genocidal acts, that, you know, they, they must find them guilty. They must. If this is not genocide, if they do not find this guilty of genocide, then they have no authority to ever find anything of genocide. Because what will it take? Then we'll know that it just matters who is committing the genocide, as opposed to anything else and then you know if if that's the way things are then you know then we have to at that point reevaluate what the fuck it means to act against genocide because then it's okay there is no legal mechanism here so you start looking at what yemen's doing and saying well you know there you go there are other actions to be taken it's just like you know the punishments courts dole out and whatnot are supposed to be a deterrent but surely the state of Israel understands the consequences of the Nuremberg trials and the short drops that a lot of the ministers and and the committers of the Holocaust received. And they are acting as though they almost know that that is not what their fate is. And I think this is largely in part due to the fact that the main players within the UN, you have your veto holders. I know some of them are at odds, but you know, the United States and the United Kingdom being so staunchly in their corner that no, they become, you become untouchable, right? I think it's, it's so obvious that those mechanisms, those international law institutions were specifically designed for the people who created them, right? The so-called victors of the war. And it has been that way ever since. And these international courts also have a huge history of only persecuting and convicting African leaders, racialized leaders. And the examples that we have of Europeans being held accountable is very, very, very few. And uh, I feel like that kind of impunity is, is just kind of known because nothing else could explain acting so belligerent a state, knowing these mechanisms exist. They know that they just can't do anything. Yeah. I've talked about a, a bit of Israel's defense already. I won't go over the fact that, well, I'll remind you that they're trying to argue that there was no intent. They'll concede. They're not arguing death toll. 
they're not saying the videos that South African lawyers sh are showing are doctored. They are just saying that they have a right to defend themselves against a terrorist organization, just like every other state does, and that this is the natural or logical consequence of that justified fight. And they have no intention of completely wiping out Gaza. They just are. And our episode here and previously has been full of evidence that they have declared this long ago and started this process long ago. And the whole claim of self-defense is another pivotal part of their their argument there that is really hard to claim, particularly at this point. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Iron Dome, I think everyone was like, okay, you know, there's rockets firing in and, you know, you saw October 7th and people breached the wall and, you know, they experienced casualties. So, you know, they can, they can explain having actual defenses, perhaps. <laughs> but how you can call what's happening now, considering the backing that you have as as any kind of defense and not a complete act of aggression, it seems like they want to be able to say that it's both. And, and it simply can't be. I mean, let's just talk about Hezbollah for a second as, a, as an example of what defense looks like. Because Hezbollah, a so-called terrorist organization, who are they targeting? They're targeting legitimate military targets. Israel has bombed Lebanon now several times. Uh, they bombed Lebanon with white phosphorus. War, which, again, war crime. And Hezbollah is not attacking civilians. They are attacking military targets. That is what defense looks like, right? So when you have less credibility than the people that you call a terrorist organization, what does that say about you? And there has been minimal media coverage. There has been, you know, one or two stories in, in, the, in the Toronto Star. The, I mean, this is a massive international issue. This is... You know, it's, it, this doesn't happen every week, and there has been minimal coverage. Worse than that, there was minimal coverage yesterday of South Africa's case. There has been more coverage today of Israel's defense. Well, you know what? Good. <laughs> Good. I'm glad everyone was watching that, honestly. They might have hyped that up for the audience, but surely they crashed and burned. Surely. I mean, you had to hope. But, I mean, these things are, are very dry to the average person it's it's likely that you know people didn't like watch it live and it's likely that they didn't get the speak for yourself <laughs> <laughs> speak for yourself i am so animated with this on like sometimes i have to like leave the room with my children <laughs> because i'm like i need to yell at that thing i there's some nerds out there that thought that was just oh yeah that was gold that was, it was validating it was especially coming from south africans it, it felt like Hopefully, a moment in history that does not get erased from the books. No, 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 absolutely not. But Canadian media, the BBC, like I load up their front page every now and again, almost to just see what they want us to focus on. <laughs> and like absent. BBC, CNN, CBC. Yeah, it's like it's not happening. All and, and, and worse than that, like and, and meanwhile, we're bombing Yemen, right? We're assisting in the bombing of Yemen. It's not like this isn't news that directly affects Canada. No. We, are, we have chosen a side. We're arming Israel. Our bombs are killing Palestinians. Well, that's the point, right? We can't yeah. do that if our, our people are watching these court proceedings and it's just so obvious to what's happening, right? That That is the media blackout. But you mentioned defense and I thought, you know, a little bit to the Houthi rebels in, in Yemen that are 
being attacked by Canadians in the UK and the US, although, you know, they're not hitting military targets, I still see their defense as legitimate. We talk about wearing down massive powers bit by bit, and they garnered quite the response. Mm -hmm. They'll likely pay the price, unfortunately. But for such a small state with relatively few resources to be so daring and to really bring the world to its knees because they made it clear that that shipping channel was not safe. So it wasn't just the arms going to Israel that would have to be rerouted. It would be the food. It would be all kinds of things. And it was it was really disrupting that precious supply chain that we will do anything for. Mm-hmm. Right. So all of the deaths that occurred in Gaza and Canadians never thought that they would go and act as a kind of defense or a monitor or anything like that. But the second that the shipping lines are disrupted uh, without massive casualties at all, and we jump right into action. And so I don't want to hear shit from anyone when I'm talking about we don't need fighter jets and we don't need to spend billions on fighter jets, because that just makes us part of the problem now. Have you have you seen the the community meme about that? No. But you're going to have to link it now that you mentioned it. Have you watched Community? Have you, have you seen Community? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know the whole I can excuse racism, but I draw the line at animal cruelty thing? All white liberals. <laughs> but it's that. But I can excuse genocide, but I draw the line at delays to shipping is the meme that's going around on Twitter right now. And yep, you know, that says it all. It really does say it all. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.